0: Giant robot smashing into other giant robots. This is the Giant Robots Smashing Into Other Giant Robots Podcast, where we explore the design, development, and business of great products. I'm your host, Chad Paitel, and with us today is David Kaplan, VP of Engineering at Policy Genius. David, thanks for joining me.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me on. So how do you describe Policy Genius to people? Policy Genius is an insurance marketplace. So typically, the classic model for insurance was uh, mostly you you would have to talk to a broker or you would talk directly to an insurance carrier. You would really delve into these very opaque products that most people don't have a lot of experience with and, and typically only have to buy once or twice in their lifetime, things like life insurance or disability insurance. And then, you know, you would go on the process to... You know, actually get fulfilled. So the value proposition that we offer is what most people have come to expect in other industries at this point, which is a self-service marketplace where you can compare your options. You can learn in depth what these products are about and also find the ones and the right coverage that really works for you and, and is customized to your life and your finances and your family's needs. And then we have a concierge experience where we'll walk you through the case management and fulfillment process.
0: So is there a specific geographies that Policy Genius is, is limited to now?
1: We are uh, confined or constrained, I don't know if that's the right way to say mm-hmm. it, to the United States. And that's mostly just because there is a very large market here. And right. also the products are very, very different by country because these are high, highly regulated industries. And a lot of it depends on the law and, of course, like you know, social policies within the countries. Right.
0: And even within the United States, you know, we're the United States. So within the states, there's lots of different rules and providers. How do you, at Policy Genius, sort of bridge that or or manage that complexity?
1: So, for example, uh, we launched home and auto insurance earlier this year as a product line, and it's been one of our you know biggest investments. And obviously, those things differ by state somewhat because the laws are a little bit different, largely, though, because different carriers are going after markets in different states. Uh, When you get into things like home insurance, you know, certain states are very hard to get uh, insurance in, like Florida and, and areas that are prone to flooding. So how do we go after it? Uh, I think the answer in short is carefully. (laughs) You know, we also know our target market very well. So our target market is really people that are between the ages of 30 and 50 years old, typically uh, people who are married or have had one or two children. And even though we have a broad range of insurance products, a lot of the ones that we focus on, like life, disability, and home are the ones that are advantageous for those folks. And A lot of the reason is because they have something to protect both financially right now, as well as they have a future to protect. So when you think about it that way, it also helps kind of constrain where you go after with your marketing. We're typically going after families that have a household income of $70,000 or more. So it helps you find where to start, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense.
0: So you joined Policy Genius the middle of last year, right? Yes, you didn't work in insurance before, right?
1: <laughs> well, no, I didn't. And <laughs> I think the great thing about our industry, uh, and I tell this to younger people that I talk to when I've you know, mentored folks who are in college or in high school, uh, the great thing about being a software engineer is that you can really work in any industry. I mean, I, I started mm-hmm. my career at Bloomberg in finance. I had a startup that was in video production software. I uh, worked at advertising and now i 'm in uh, financial protection and insurance it 's obviously a new domain to learn, but a lot of, a lot of times the technologies really are the same and, and the concepts you can you can mm-hmm. bring over so i 've been very lucky there. What attracted me to them well one i 'm in the target market of this company mm-hmm. i 've got you 're not a,
0: only the vP of engineering you 're also <laughs> a customer
1: that 's right <laughs> you know when I applied here, my daughter was four months old mm-hmm. now she 's you know seventeen months old. And so I got the value proposition right away. You know, I'm one of those parents with the Excel spreadsheet of tasks that I need to accomplish that's like 100 items long. And I know that each one of those items is very complicated. And insurance, wills, things like that are at the top of the list, but are also a little bit stressful to get into because Mm -hmm. you know that it's going to be a big project to undertake.
0: So in undertaking that big project of just getting insurance... You decided to start a company that is on the other side of the complexity, which is managing all of that complexity, making it simple for people.
1: Uh, definitely. And and I'll say that that was only one part that attracted me to it. Mm-hmm. Obviously, I want to understand the products I'm building. I want, to, I want them to resonate with me. You know, because I think I'll be more useful, I'll be more motivated. The other thing that really resonated me with when, when I was looking was I'm fairly particular about the culture and, the, and specifically the management culture of companies that I look at, you know, to join. I've worked at big companies, small companies. I've had my own company. And when I was talking to Jen, uh, who's the CEO, and Francois, who's one of the co-founders, it started to resonate right away, and, and for a lot of reasons. I pride myself on really understanding the industry, constantly reading and understanding what the new trends are, both in technology, but also in engineering practice, which actually changes, I think, even quicker than technology. And I was hoping for a good fit, which I found, an alignment with folks who you know, maybe weren't Ten out of 10 in every area, but wanted to be. And, you know, I've certainly worked at places where when they came in contact with ambiguity, they would make things up. And what I was hoping for was a culture where the first response would be to look towards the industry, try to be able to use the learnings from other companies, both successful and, and failures, to solve the problem before making something up. And that's, that is Jen and Francois to a T you know, they're ex-McKinsey consultants. The answer is always get more data, go find out what other folks are doing. And then if you can't find an answer, then maybe make something up.
0: Mm -hmm. So you joined as VP of engineering.
1: Yes, which is the head of engineering. I work work directly with Jen.
0: Looking at your history, it's not the first time you've joined a company in a leadership or VP of engineering position. How do you sort of approach that? you know. Obviously, there's existing infrastructure, there's existing teams. Do you have sort of a, a strategy for how you approach that or the things you look for as you're entering and then your approach to everything that's already there as you ramp up? Yeah,
1: absolutely. So one of my mentors at Bloomberg, I remember he described this to me because when he joined Bloomberg, which had a very unique culture, you know, he said that in order to be successful, he had to go native. And he said what he meant by that was you have to come in, you have to learn the customs you have to learn the culture even if it's something totally alien to you and you have to make no assumptions about why they do things and really find out why they think those customs and cultures and practices and techniques are good and then you can start adding value potentially offering alternative solutions i think the the worst starts i've ever seen other leaders have uh and maybe i've I've been lucky because i've been able to learn from their mistakes or when they come in and immediately start applying tried and true practices in their sure. head to something. And you know, people are immediately put off uh, because they're making changes without really understanding the ramifications.
0: Yeah, we've seen that before. Obviously, at ThoughtBot, we're involved in lots of different places. And it's not uncommon for a CTO or a VP of engineering to be hired in who does that. And it can be everything from just immediate transitions in technology, like throwing things away and saying, we're switching to Java or, you know, something like that <laughs> yeah. to also changes in vendors to sort of arbitrarily say, you know, at my previous place, we outsourced a bunch of stuff to this country. We're going to do that again. And to immediately start doing that. Now, maybe they come in with the mandate to do that, but even if that's the case, not having the credibility from the current staff and the current team or really being part of it. It just seems like a big uh, gap from what I've seen in terms of being successful.
1: Totally. And in fact, you know, one one thing you just said resonated with me a little bit. My mentor at Bloomberg, the one who gave me this advice, that's exactly the mandate he had. He was hired Mm -hmm. by then the president of the company, who's no longer there, you know, he was told, you know, I I want you to go make these changes. And he actually willfully resisted that and came in and really partnered with people, showed them how he could add value and improve their lives on the ground before really going after what the president of the company wanted him to. And in doing that, he gained so much credibility. He really got in the weeds and understood what was good and be able to make recommendations to the president about what he could change and what Mm -hmm. he would change. So
0: given that, how much sort of thought or vetting are you doing when you're deciding to join an organization about the current tech stack, the current practices of the team and and that kind of thing?
1: So it's a good question. I would say it's not my top priority, actually. Mm-hmm. And because I know that if you if you've got the right team and if you've got the right company that's growing, that you can expand the technology organically. And not, I'm not saying replace, but expand. Right. So it's not the biggest concern of mine. And I also am at a point in my career where, I, you know, I've heard this from other staff engineers, where, you know, just because they're using Java or Ruby on Rails or or whatever language it is, the concepts still apply. You know, I can mm-hmm. still give advice on good etl process or good microservice process with any of those languages so it really doesn't bother me i mean i've i've interviewed at places that were using elixir and i've never touched elixir in my life i'll tell you what did matter more was the product the culture you know what their mission was their ideals and also i wanted to believe that number one that this company was going to be around tomorrow and this is not something that you know could go out of business at the drop of a hat uh, and then number two, I wanted to see huge growth potential. So more of my vetting was on that side. Mm-hmm. You know. And I've gotten to a point in my career where I think the vetting, it's probably approaching 50-50. Obviously, they're asking me a ton of questions, but I'm asking just as many, whether it's who are your competitors. What is your growth rate? Is that going to continue? How do you know? You know, are you a single product? Are you a portfolio product? When are you going to be a portfolio strategy? All those type of things. And I want to hear, you know, real numbers. I want to hear things about target markets, total addressable markets. That's what gives me confidence is knowing that their current business model will work, but also they have plans for future ones that I can believe in.
0: How do you, if you do, go about Vetting the engineering team and making sure that the team that you want to work with and feel like you can be a part of.
1: yeah, it's a lot of Socratic questions. Mm-hmm. you know if you're coming in in a leadership position, you know a lot of times there will be some lingering concerns, right. So getting out you know what those are, hearing how truthful the team is about them, how open they are, how willing to change they are, And again, it's not to say that I want to come in and change everything, but trying to think about, okay, if I do start and there are these concerns, what am I going to have buy-in and how flexible is the team towards changing that at least addresses their concerns? Mm -hmm. Uh, Those are the type of things I look for. Of course, I'm looking for, you know, what is the balance on the team? Does it more spike towards younger, fresh out of college or boot camp engineers, or are there some senior folks to rely on? I don't expect coming in in that level of leadership position that there's just going to be this amazing cookie cutter team where, you know, I'm going to step in and it's going to be like nine to five and, you know, I'm going to have a very, very easy path. No, I I know that I'm going to come in and, you know, there are going to be some areas where I'm going to have to dig into and probably spend a concerted amount of time and build out. And honestly, that's the fun part, right? I Mm -hmm. love building teams. I love building processes and techniques. So that is my expectation.
0: So, what was
1: the tech stack that you were coming to at Policy Genius? On the front end, it was React, mm-hmm. pretty much Im- ubiquitously. And, and again, this was also a good sign as they had made the transition to React and done it successfully. So, it showed that uh, they were able to, one, keep up with the industry and also make actual change, which was really cool. They had also transferred their entire API mm-hmm. layer over from REST to GraphQL. Mm-hmm. That was another great, great sign. They, of course, like every startup, had some monolithic services, but they were also breaking them apart and had already begun the journey towards microservices, all of which were Dockerized and in Kubernetes, a hosted version of Kubernetes on Google Cloud. Database on the transactional side was 100% Postgres. And then something else I was also very impressed with, which was that they had a fully built out data warehouse. Now, in my career, especially earlier in my career, I didn't have this title, but I think nowadays I would have been called a data engineer. Mm-hmm. I built out multiple data warehouses back then using things that were pretty hard to use, like SSIS, SQL Server, data cubes, uh, which took years to build out. And literally, with one single heroic uh, data engineer, they had built out a full ETL process using Python, Airflow, BigQuery as the actual data store, you know, a view layer, and then Tableau Server. So that was pretty cool to see in a company because usually when I go in. The first problem to solve is not analytics, but how do you just get your data in one place? And they had it all already in one place.
0: So were you filling a vacancy or was this a new position?
1: It was a vacancy. Mm -hmm. There was a previous CTO who had parted ways about six months before they had found me. And so they were looking for somebody to come in and take them through really out of I would say the company had really gotten out of that survival stage, mm-hmm. maybe six months to a year before I started. And they were looking for somebody to come in and help their engineers to really re-strategize and figure out what that meant getting into the growth stage for the engineering team, which to me, like the way I sum that up is survival stage, okay, you're accumulating tech debt on purpose because you don't have product market fit, but you know, then you come in and you're in growth stage. Now it's the fun part. Now it's all about layering in sophistication within your process, agile scrum, within your techniques, you know, things like you know, CICD, and then also uh, paying down that tech debt that you've accumulated during the uh, survival stage. So you said the vacancy was
0: created by a CTO, yes. but you came on as VP of engineering. So from your perspective, what's the difference between those two roles?
1: It's a good question. You know, When you're early on uh, in a smaller company, I think you give out the role of CTO because you're hoping to get, one, somebody experienced, but also it's a lot harder to recruit. So I don't think the role is any different. I think it was just the time in which they hired. Mm-hmm. So when they had hired the previous CTO, I actually forget the size they were at, but it, it couldn't have been more than like 30 folks. You know, by the time they hired me, they were about 120, and their policy was uh, new leaders of departments were all coming in at the VP level. I think mm-hmm. it's a good risk mitigation tactic. Get somebody in. You know, even after you do uh, a good interview process, you know, people are still a crapshoot. We all know that. So get somebody in, have them prove out that they know what they're doing, and then you know, open up the opportunity for them to have a title change as they show success.
0: Now, at companies with both a CTO and a VP of engineering, I imagine that there is a difference between those two. There
1: is. There is. And I've actually, I've got a peer group in New York City that I work with uh, very closely, and some have the CTO title, some have the VP title. The difference there is typically CTO is running the department, and when you have both, it's when the department is large enough, usually getting up towards like 80 engineers or more. Mm-hmm. And the VP of engineering is much more tactically focused, performance focused, management focused. The CTO is a little more strategic focused and outwardly focused. It's kind of like when your company gets this, this large, the difference between a COO and a CEO, where yeah. the CEO is a lot more outside looking, you know, more about recruiting and sales and PR and of course strategy. Uh, whereas your COO is much much more about the inner workings of the company. That's that's how I see the dichotomy between CTO and, and VP of Eng. But mm-hmm. at our size, it doesn't really warrant yet having both uh, roles. Cool. So getting
0: back to tech stack, you mentioned what was existing, and I saw on an article about using Flutter. So you obviously are working on some mobile stuff at Policy Genius. How did choosing Flutter come about? And actually, I I don't want to make the assumption that everyone who's listening even knows what Flutter is. So let's start there.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, and and I told you where we started, and I'll tell Mm -hmm. you that very aggressively over the last year, because when I started, we had three feature teams and one platform team, which consisted of an SRE, a test automation engineer, and a data engineer. Now we've got six feature teams. We've got a data engineering team. We've got a full platform team. We're growing very aggressively and so um we're also at the same time expanding our technical depth and breadth and not just for the sake of doing it but to solve real business problems. So one of those areas is mobile development. And I can't talk in detail about the product uh because it, it hasn't been released yet. But I'll tell I'll talk about the decision to go with Flutter. So my history here with mobile, you know, I wouldn't say it's insanely long but it's it's fairly long. So when I had my startup 2 careers ago, we had a mobile app and at the time, we had chosen, and I'm sure some of your listeners are going to laugh at me for this, but we had chosen to use Cordova and Ionic. And at the time, Flutter didn't exist. React Native was very, very new. I think it had been out maybe nine months. And it was really still heavily invested in iOS and really not Android. And so what we had wanted to do at the time was to create a single app. There was only a few of us. We didn't want to have duplication of effort just to get an MVP app, right? Mm-hmm. So I had that experience. Of course, the horrible performances implications that come with <laughs> Cordova, which you're laughing, so I'm sure you know. Yeah. My next company at uh, Yodel, which was which was bought YWeb.com, I actually had the only mobile team in the whole company. And we were originally native, and obviously I loved it for the flexibility on the UI and the uh, performance that it was able to produce, but we were redoing uh, the same code in both platforms. I had a team of four developers, two of which were iOS two of which were Android. And if somebody went on vacation, it was significantly impacting our uh, velocity. We had at one point lost somebody from the team, and uh, it, it was a really big deal. And also the problem was, was the team was actually working on an MVP, so it really didn't warrant the quality that the native code was uh, giving us. Mm-hmm. So we had at that company actually transitioned to React Native. With the promise that you know, with a, we were, were developing a new MVP there, that it would allow us to share code. There was also the promise of okay, you know, most of our our full stack devs are already using React, so they'll be easy, easily easily yeah. able to
0: get it. Did that. you transition to React Native by starting over again, or did you start adding React Native? to the existing apps that you were working on?
1: Neither. Uh, Actually, it was a brand new app and we looked at that as an opportunity. Hey, let's try out this cross-platform thing Mm -hmm. and see how it goes. So it was, yeah, we we didn't rewrite the app. We didn't add on to an existing app. It was actually a completely new app, completely new product. And, And we had good results. I would mm-hmm. say, actually, it took us a little longer to develop the app than we expected. The developer experience was was very lacking, and it was hard to tell that before we got into it. It was something that the developers really expressed on the other side after they had already developed the app.
0: Was it the iOS and Android developers that were building that React Native app, or was it the website developers that were doing it?
1: It was a combination. So mm-hmm. the React and iOS folks obviously had all of the experience with the hangups and the, and the differences between mobile development, mm-hmm. you know, even the release cycle differences. So I wanted them involved because I wanted to avert some risk there. The problem was, was that they had known Swift and they had known Java and mm-hmm. also Kotlin. They didn't know JavaScript. They didn't know React. Right. So we also pulled in some of the full stack devs who had a lot of experience with JavaScript uh, and React. And really by mixing that team up, we were able to really mitigate a lot of risk early on cool, and that was my my long winded way of saying that I had a lot of experience with mm-hmm. mobile, and so we went about looking uh, we really narrowed down to two options we narrowed down to do we go with React Native? or do we go down with Flutter? And Dan Novograd on the team actually wrote a great article on this uh, that's on our blog Mm -hmm. and was uh, picked up by Google, where we went down basically like a month and a half long spike, and we actually did prototypes in both. We talked to the Flutter team, we talked to some consultants that work with the Flutter team over at a, a company called Very Good Ventures, really evaluated point by point the advantages and disadvantages, because we knew that this was a big choice and we were probably gonna get stuck with it, especially if this app was successful. Now, the reason we started, if it's not totally obvious, with the cross-platform frameworks was, again, because this is an MVP we're building. I didn't want duplication of effort. I wanted to be able to prototype and experiment very, very quickly. And both of those platforms uh, at least sold that. And really, it, it was so neck and neck. It really came down to the prototypes where just the experience that Flutter has created for the developer is really, I think, uh, a few steps ahead of where React Native is now. And I can go into a, a few details as, as to why that is. And not only that, but also the performance promise of Flutter into the future is also more advantageous than React Native. No matter what way you slice it, React Native it still has a large part of the code will be interpreted. You're going through a bridge to connect with the uh, native operating system. And even though it is way faster than what I used to do with Cordova, I've seen it you know skip and lag around some very large lists and some complex components. Mm-hmm. I'm sure that th- their team, if they're listening, will probably say that we we instrumented it incorrectly, but uh, yeah. I've seen it <laughs> time right. and time again. And when that happens, it truly does not feel like a great experience as a user. Our experience with Flutter has been great. And you know I, I like the way uh, one of the VGV guys, the very good venture guys, described it this way, that it, it was written almost like you would write a video game framework where it completely bypasses the operating system. It literally takes control of your screen and it paints everything natively. It doesn't try to use native components and somehow bridge the gap between JavaScript and how they're rendered. It literally paints it. So in some cases, and they, this is what they advertise, and I have not seen any evidence that counteracts this. In some cases it's actually faster than native code. It's a very good experience for the end user the other thing that I think they did right, and I, I've seen Google do this multiple times because Google's the one who develops Flutter, is the model with React Native was, okay, we're going to make a very, very tight, small library, and then we're going to rely on third party contributors to create lots of reusable components, which is nice, especially if you're in open source community. The downside of that is you wind up with a very fragmented library library. Of options for your UI. And typically, none of them are great. So maybe somebody created a widget. you just described JavaScript development in general. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) And and maybe that's because I used to do a lot of Python development that uh, I'm more in line with that community. You're right. No, I think that that's,
0: I'm being glib, but I also think that that's why someone who's in that community and coming from that doesn't necessarily see that problem. You know, the fact that you're doing a Yarn install and it's literally like thousands of different things or deciding, you know, how are we going to do navigation within this app? Yeah. Those kinds of things, in my mind, should be answered questions. And the fact that they're not and that you got to make a decision about that and decide what library and what approach you're going to do. You know, there's a reason why I switched to Rails early on was because it takes the opinionated Standpoint of we're gonna we're gonna answer those questions for you, and just that's not the case in the JavaScript community. It's not the case with React Native.
1: Uh, you're totally right, and I mean we use we use Ruby on Rails on the back end. I used to use Django, uh, Python, which was modeled, as far as I know, I think it was modeled after Rails, and I, I love that approach, especially as a beginner in the language. Because you get to really focus on the business value and you don't have to think as much. I'm sure there's a lot of people out there who are not happy that I'm saying that. And I I totally get it. I guess, you know, once you become an expert in that area, then that flexibility is amazing. And by the way, you still have that flexibility with Flutter. There is still a open source community that is really great. The difference is, is that, so with JavaScript, which of course has been around for over 20 years, The open source community is fairly robust, and there's a lot of very good options. What we had seen with React Native is that wasn't always the case. You know, it's been around for a while now, but it's still fairly new. And a lot of what we wanted to do, there were not great options, and we would have had to roll our own components. With Flutter, what they did, and they knew, hey, we're going to be competing against this thing that's been around for at least five years now, is they really created a very robust core set of uh, UI components that were very easy to customize to your own usability language, your own style, right? And the documentation is unbelievable. And I know that that sounds like a superfluous thing, but it's, I think it's really important when you're starting out to know the limits of what these things can do. And so uh, those were all great advantages. Not only that, just the, the general development environment. I mean, I did a little bit of React Native coding myself back in my day. And we are constantly struggling with the emulator and connecting it to your phone and getting this, I'm trying to remember, was it the blue screen of death? I might be mm-hmm. misremembering the my Windows 95 days. It's red, yes. I'm, I'm misremembering my Windows 95 days. But with Flutter, we have not had a lot of those pain points. And that's why I say it really took us to get down to the POC to figure that out. Mm-hmm. Like I said, I have some uh, connections that have done both uh, summit consultant agencies, and uh, they all were saying the same thing that they were having a much better experience with Flutter. Of course, there's a little bit of anxiety about okay, it's really new. You know, is this thing going to be around in a few years? Is it going to be supported? And you know, so you have to, of course, get over that.
0: I think as someone who cares a lot about building really high quality products, one of my concerns with Flutter is. Like you said, it's drawing directly to the glass, essentially, of the mobile device. And therefore, it's not using iOS UI components, and it's not using Android components. And so it's either got to do a lot of heavy lifting to mirror what an iOS app is expected to be, or th- these are my concerns, mm-hmm. or it's going to look like it's not an actual iOS app that's coming to it. And I know that a lot of work has been done to solve those problems, but those would be some of my concerns from a product standpoint.
1: Yeah, no, it's and it's a very valid concern. Uh, we haven't run into them yet, I will tell you. Mm-hmm. And we are building a very, it's not a read-only app. It's a very interactive app. So we're definitely testing the limits and we've been working on it for a while. We haven't hit it yet, but you know, maybe if you have me on in another six months, I'll tell you a different story. <laughs>
0: Well, I know one of the – are you using Material Design on the app?
1: We are, which, yeah. which I don't know how familiar you are with this, but they're, now they're, they're on – I think it's called Material 2.0. It's yeah. very flexible. I mean, when I was using Material for my startup, it was not that flexible, and every app looked exactly the same. Mm-hmm. Uh, these ones you can really style, and it's pretty indistinguishable from the rest of our website. So that's the idea behind
0: sort of getting around that thing is you're not necessarily – programming exactly to, you know, the Android style guide or to the iOS human interface guidelines, you're doing something else, which is material.
1: That is right. And I will say that they they do a good job of getting around at least the basics, like the navigation Mm -hmm. and the way the back button works. And I haven't experimented this with as much as my engineers have, but they also do have something called Cupertino, which is supposed to more similarly emulate Uh, the look and feel of iOS. So Mm -hmm. I I think they've got the important stuff, but you're right. There are definitely some interactions that are going to be different. But, you know, when you've got a new product and it's an MVP, it's not usually your top concern. I mean, even just thinking back to the original Facebook app, which I'm sure if you remember, everybody hated, but, uh, (laughs) you know, their goal was just to get into mobile. And so they used, I believe they used Cordova as well back then. And then eventually they moved over to native.
0: Yeah. And I don't want to minimize... These problems actually still exist in React Native as well because React Native isn't opinionated. You start with a blank white screen on a React Native app. You actually have to do a fair amount of work to make sure that your app actually behaves like it should on both of the different platforms around navigation and that kind of thing. Absolutely.
1: I mean, no matter what, every team I've been on that has worked on React Native, has always had to deal with the bridge, had to write some native code because, you know, whatever was out there or whatever was written did not work exactly like they needed and that of course was was fairly painful.
0: I love the distinction that you're making between like we're working on an MVP so our target is to get on mobile. And I, I presume that the target is to offer something to customers so that you have a viable product and that you're there. And then from there, you take it as it comes. And it may be what I hear is in the future, after we grow and we have a large engineering team, the decision may be made, OK, we are going to work on an iOS app in Swift and an Android app in Kotlin or Java. But that's not the point you're at as a company. Am I hearing that right?
1: You are exactly right. And when I say that I'm a big believer, and I know we didn't really get into this, but in top of industry practices, Mm -hmm. I've been on enough waterfall six month to a year failed projects to know that you should never assume that your idea or your value proposition is actually going to succeed. So the idea is to fail fast. So that's exactly what we're doing. We're we're building something getting it out to market as quickly as possible we're not going to be fully proud of every angle of it because uh, if you are then you probably took way too long to build it get some early feedback with some beta users and then go from there
0: how do you balance that desire or that goal of working that way with maybe some of the needs of the industries that you're in in terms of you know how button down some insurance offerings need to be and, and that kind of thing
1: is there tension there There's always attention. Whenever you're doing an MVP, I mean, I think ever since, you know, and and I know the term has been around for a while. I can't remember who originally coined it, but I know that Eric Reese uh, with the Lean Startup uh, Mm -hmm. certainly made it very popular. The question has been is this really an MVP or is this a full product or is this not actually viable? What does viable mean, right? I know even some folks have switched the term and they start calling it a minimum valuable product. Right. I think it's, meeting often with a decent amount of stakeholders, workshopping, really doing uh, forms of story mapping. I think the best technique that we've ever learned is to write all your assumptions out, every assumption that you have. And, you know, hopefully you've done a good amount of discovery where you've at least got a decent hypothesis that some of these will be correct, but still identify them. And then write the ones that are dependent on others. And then start cutting right if once you've mm-hmm. got maybe six assumptions, okay, maybe that's enough for an m v p because if the if if any one of these six or if two out of six are wrong, then we gotta change the whole thing. Also think about what decision you will make, given the learnings from the m v p So I like to think ahead, so maybe a month or a month and a half after we release the beta, we've got enough data, usage data to be able to analyze. Which of our assumptions were correct, and which ones were were mistaken? Mm-hmm. what am I going to do with that information, and is that the useful pivot point if it's not, meaning that I won't make any different decisions, then I've done something wrong. I haven't cut my m v p correctly because I've seen many times where we make something that's actually too minimum. Mm-hmm. We release it, we get some early data, and then we go, "Oh, well, that's okay. We didn't get any usage because we didn't implement x, y, and z. Well, then why was that your m v p yep. So those exercises help a lot really to define what's right now. Of course, you have to abide by the law. So those come in as constraints. You know, like, for example, if you're working on something that's regulated, I mean, those things are, yeah, they have to be in the app if there is Mm -hmm. a requirement there, Mm -hmm. like if you have a certain financial requirement.
0: I think that that's great advice in terms of writing down your assumptions. And, you know, the majority of what we do is help people create something new. It's one of the tools that we use. And it's also a red flag. If you're not able to write a healthy list of assumptions, here are the things that we either believe to be true, but we don't actually know it, or here's the things that we're assuming. If you're not able to write a healthy list of those, it's a very good indicator that you actually haven't done enough research, that you don't really know what you're doing yet. That's what I've found.
1: Or you're not asking the right questions. Right, you right. know, There's a strange balance. There's a saying, which I'm going to butcher, I'll paraphrase it, which is, you know, you want your CEO or your product manager to really believe emphatically that you're going to be successful, right? That's the type (laughs) of person you want in there. But at the same time, you also don't want them to believe it so much where they actually think that their first product is going to be an absolute success. So it's kind of strange. You want them there so that they're resilient and that they keep going, but you want them to be able to ask the right questions and to tease out those assumptions and really say to themselves that you don't know as much as you think you know.
0: Yeah, and to be able to change based on what you learn. That's right. Well, David, I think that that's a, probably a great place to wrap it up. If people want to follow along with you or get in touch with you or learn more about Policy Genius, where's all the places they can do that?
1: So we have a great blog, which is on medium.com we have a general policy genius blog and there's a a tab for technology. We've been at least publishing one article a month. So if there's interesting topics there, you can always start a conversation there. You could also go to our career site and apply. uh, If you're interested in what I'm saying and want to learn more, we try to structure our interview process so that it's a way to also see what we're about and to get to know us as much as we're getting to know you. Or you could reach out to me on LinkedIn. I have no problems with that. I usually get to respond to everybody on there and we can pick up the conversation from, there.
0: Wonderful. You can subscribe to the show and find notes for this episode at giantrobots.fm. If you have questions or comments, email us at hosts at giantrobots.fm. And you can find me on Twitter at CPytel. This podcast is brought to you by ThoughtBot and produced and edited by Tom Mabarski. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.
1: This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. We are experienced designers and developers who turn your idea into the right product. With local studios in Boston, San Francisco, New York, London, Austin, and Raleigh, let's build something great together.